first reading this morning is Matthew 4, 1 to 11. It's on page 809 um, in your pew Bible. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, You will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship your God, the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The second reading comes from James 1, first 2 through 4, and then uh, 12 through 15. And it's found on um, 1011 in the Pubot Bible. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. Then down to 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who, who, he, who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Well, we're continuing our study today um, of the life of Jesus. For many of us, we began the Lenten series by saying we're going to just focus on Jesus during these, this season. We began by the precursor to Jesus, John the Baptist, you might remember, um, several weeks ago. And we heard him preach this powerful message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we heard also John's voice saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The test is not what you do in public. The test is, is whether or not your life bears fruit. And we studied on Ash Wednesday together that amazing passage in John 15 where Jesus showed us the way to bear fruitful lives. 
Then last week we saw Jesus' own obedience as he came to John the Baptist, surprising the daylights out of John the Baptist and, and, and requesting baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And, and John, like you and me, stumbled because um, why would Jesus need forgiveness of sins he alone ever walked the earth as a human being and did it without sin. We learn that in his love, Jesus was identifying with us and that it was we who were actually going with him into the waters of baptism. And because of that obedience, Jesus heard God speak to him. Jesus saw The heavens torn, remember that word, torn open. The Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. And he heard God say, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. That's what makes it so crazy. What what happens next? Did you hear it in in Matthew 4, verse 1? Then, and, and Mark in his account would say, immediately... Right after one of the highest moments in Jesus' life, he led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. Oh, day today, beloved, God's going to rock our world, right? He's going to constantly, every time we think we've got God in this little box, and now I understand him, he just blows the doors off of it. And he sends his own beloved son right after the pinnacle of his life on his 30th birthday, the the announcement that he is God's son, then he is sent into the wilderness of Judea. He actually says up into the wilderness of Judea, right? He's down at one of the lowest places on earth, by the way. He's down by the Dead Sea, and God has to drive him up into the desert. Uh, Some of you have had that privilege of driving that road and and riding up into the wilderness of Judea. And and my ESV said he actually led led them into the, led Jesus into the wilderness, but, but the word is really much stronger than that. He drove Jesus into the wilderness. Again, I don't know about you, but there are several things in this one verse that absolutely rock. My world. Look, look how immediately after this greatest moment in Jesus' earthly life, God sent him into the wilderness where for 40 days he fasted. Remember last week or two weeks ago, we learned that the wilderness is that place where there is no no word of God. God sent the word of God into the place where there was no word of God. And for 40 days, there's no mention of God speaking. Yes, angels came later, we saw in verse 11, and ministered to Jesus. But it was after, after the 40 days, after that temptation, right? And it, it just kind of rocks our understanding of God's relationship with us. Let me just ask you again, in case you've forgotten the last 15 minutes, does God love you? Absolutely, right? But sometimes because he loves you, he sends you into places where you're going to be tempted to doubt that love, right? You're going to be tempted to doubt that love. God is not a, well, God's not a pet, <laughs> That sits, I don't know why I'm going to this analogy, but, but God's not a pet like my devil cat that sits at the foot of my bed, right? And, and, and you can scratch it when you go by and, and feel good. I, I think I have a relationship with my cat, right? My cat knows much better. 
right? Um, but I go by and I scratch it. If it'll let me, I'll scratch its ears and think, Ooh, thank you, cat, for letting me scratch your ears, right? And, and, um, and I, kind of, I kind of see that as this, this strange pet that makes me feel better about myself once in a while, but who most of the day I don't even think about. Now, one of my pets jumped the fence during the storm last week and came over here. Found out later that the reason Kristen kept leaving a meeting we were in is because my dog was in her office. God's not a pet, you guys. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's not someone we just scratch behind the ears once in a while and say, you know, thank you, God, for giving me the things I need. You remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was, was talking with Susan. And, 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 and Susan said, is Aslan, the Christ figure in that story, is Aslan safe? And, and Mr. Beaver says, goodness, woman, Aslan, and I would say God, is not safe, but he's good. He's good. And sometimes that good God leads you into places that you cannot imagine. Why? Why would that be? We're going to have to believe and trust that because he loves us more than we could possibly imagine he's got something for us in that wilderness. Pray with me, would you? Oh God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So God has just given Jesus this new identity, and he gives us a new identity in Jesus. He gives Jesus, a new name, and he gives us a new name. What is our new name for now? Beloved. Beloved, right? He even gives us the presence and power of his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, right? He gives us these things for a reason. We're going to need every single one of them if we're going to dwell in the wilderness, if we're going to walk among a people of unclean lips, if we're going to go into the places where there is no word of God. So right off the bat, recognize that it's God who sometimes drives us into the physical and the emotional and even spiritual deserts, right? Even spiritual deserts. But he does it for a reason. Well, let's, let's go back to the story of Jesus. For what reason did, did, did the Spirit drive Jesus into the wilderness? Hold on to your seats, everyone, right? Because if, if this amazing love of God rocks our world, this is going to rock your world too. To be tempted by the devil. To be tempted by the devil. If those words don't rock your world, you're not paying attention. God's Spirit drives us sometimes into the place where we can be tempted by the devil. Some of you may be shaken because you don't really believe that there is a devil. And we've addressed it before, but if, if you weren't able to be with us at that time, the devil is a, is a personal entity diabolically opposed to the will of God. From Genesis 3, right, to Revelation, the devil is, is opposing the things of God in your life. And some of you are just struggling because I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really believe in the devil. And I would just remind you 
I would just remind you at this point that Jesus not only believed in the reality of an evil one, but as we're going to see, especially in the coming weeks, Jesus faced him down in the very wilderness we find him entering today. So if you believe in the God of the Bible, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you must believe in the reality of the adversary, Satan. The question is not really for us then, does Satan exist? But instead, how can I live in light of that reality? Satan has incredible weapons in his arsenal, including innuendo, lies, out-and-out accusations. But one of the most powerful weapons that he uses is temptation. So I want to explore that with you today. We're going to, we're going to be in this issue of temptation for three more weeks after this, and we're going to follow Jesus through those temptations. But today, let's, let's just say, what does this mean to be tempted, right? We're going to ask ourselves several questions. Now, now I don't know about you, but, but when you hear that word tempted, what does your mind go to, right? What is temptation for you? I want to suggest to you that many of our minds go to, yeah, food. Am I making that up? No, no, that's real, right? And again, since I've changed my medications after the heart attack, all of a sudden I just find my, my world's gone crazy. All of a sudden I'm craving things I never craved before in my life. And I can go through a bag of M&Ms and nothing flat. I kid you not. I'm not talking about the little, no. I, I'm serious. I caused a lot of alarm in my home. The, the volume of M&M's. Some of our minds go there. Let's be real honest. Some of our minds go to, um, to lust, right? Some of our minds go to physical or emotional um, lust for, um, for some sexual sin, right? Here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. Recently, a, a study was done of what, what... Now, this is believers. This is followers of Jesus. Even, even if you'll take it one step further, people who call themselves disciples of Jesus, a, a, a magazine called Discipleship Journal polled its readers and said, what is your greatest struggle, right? And it's a little bit surprising what these followers of Jesus said. They said, my greatest struggle is with materialism. Can I get an amen? Oh, my goodness. I know that's, that's mine. Gotta possess it. Gotta control it. Gotta own it. And as a result, well, I have an office like my office, right? Um, materialism. Second was pride. Was pride. Can I get an amen? A little quieter on that one. <laughs> the third was self-centeredness. Yeah. This is going to be interesting. See if I get any amens on this one. Laziness. <laughs> Nobody's really known that one. Isn't that funny? The cultural pressure. Uh, I can. I can. Uh, boy, I. I shared with you before my greatest, my only really memory of my grandfather on my uh, dad's side, uh, my step grandfather was him sitting on a recliner. Guess what? Eating M and M's. I am my grandfather's grandson, right? Then, number five, actually a tie with number six, but it was anger and bitterness. Can I get an amen? Does sometimes you just get angry and you don't know, what, what is this, right? Isn't that interesting? 
Then came sexual lust. Then came envy. Then came gluttony. Then came lying, right? Um, uh, a lot of the things that are, are, are okay ones, the ones we socially talk about, are not some of the most insidious ones. But we need to, we need to go deeper together, beloved. Um, let's, let's explore this. I'm not going to define temptation right away because we all have a working definition in our minds. But let's, let's ask a couple ancillary questions if we can. Where does temptation come from, right? To help us understand temptation, we're going to have to go to James. Now, as for some of you, that's the name of a book in the Bible, but who was this guy, right? Who was it? Now, there's five Jameses in the Bible, but, but, um, but two of them are likely candidates for this. One of them was the Apostle James, but, but by the time this book was written, James was already dead. But there's another James, and he's a James who was a secret disciple, if, if a disciple at all, of Jesus while he walked the earth. But after Jesus rose from the grave, James believed, and it was Jesus' own brother, James. And most likely, that's the author of this book. He had a front row seat, not just for the three years of Jesus' ministry. He thought Jesus was crazy, by the way, in that time. But he saw his whole life. And when he says, I believe this is the Son of God, that has meaning, doesn't it? He, among anybody, would know. So we're going to go to James and and seek James' help. And and most of us love the book of James because it's so eminently practical. It it does not mess around. When I'm tempted to think ethereal thoughts about God, James, bring me back. and, And he says, well, show me what you believe, right? James brings me back to reality. So let's ask James, where does temptation come from because because this scripture looks like it says that temptation comes from god right if you just did a precursory reading of the scripture you would say god tempts us right but james is really clear he does not want to mess around did you hear it in that scripture let no one say when he is tempted i'm being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one James 1.13, does God tempt people? I would say no, but he drives us into places where we can be tempted. And some of you are calling, uh, I'm not going to use that word, some of you are calling um, foul, right? Because isn't this just semantics? If he doesn't tempt us, but he drives us into this place where we can be tempted, doesn't God, isn't that God tempting us? No, no, we've got to go deeper, beloved. We've got to understand this. Why would he drive us into places where we could be tempted, right? If he doesn't want us to be tempted. Because it produces something good in us. And I'll just tempt you with this for a second. Was that wrong word? Um, uh, steadfastness, right? Endurance, translated in other Bibles, perseverance. We'll look in depth in this in a moment. But for right now, does God tempt his people? No, but he puts us in places where, yeah, temptation might happen um, because he knows that there's something good that happens in us when we resist, when we overcome. So let's go back to the question, then, by whom or what will we be tempted I want to just remind you of a scripture from just weeks ago when we were studying the book of Ephesians together, right? We got to Ephesians chapter 2 and we heard Paul say these words, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of, and there it was, this world, right? Following the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's um, Paul's word for Satan, right? 
The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's Pauline language for, for the world, the flesh, and the evil one, right? We're going to unpack that a little bit. The world, the culture in which we live, which rails against the things of God, and then our own, and we learn that flesh is not necessarily just our bodies, but really our sinful nature that we inherited all the way back to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve, but our own sinful nature is going to rail against the things of God as well. That's why... John, another uh, disciple of Jesus, in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Oh, it kills me to just go so fast over so much powerful truths. But, but, wow, I just got slapped upside of the uh, face just in reading that when it wasn't even where I was going with the point, right? Because in so many ways, I love the world. I've carved out a comfortable existence in this world. But how does the hymn go? This world is not my home, right? Help me, next line. I'm just passing through, right? Um, Wow. The world, the flesh, and the evil one are all conspiring against us, but the world itself, where we we find out that he goes even, even deeper. Did you hear them as that was going by? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, sound familiar? Is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world's passing away with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever, right? So we learned three more tools. I don't know if she was going that fast with me, but, but the desires of our flesh, right? The desires of our eyes and pride. He's giving us a primer here on, on temptation. The world, our own flesh, and the evil one, the desires of our flesh, be it something simple as a, as a Sunday or something uh, uh, as insidious as adultery or, or sexual immorality, right? Um, those desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, I see that, I've got to have that. And as we saw in that, in that survey earlier, pride, all of those things are what will tempt you, beloved. And then lastly, again, if you didn't take that note either, the evil one. And during this, during this next few weeks, we're going to focus especially on that one. Because um, Jesus, facing, yes, the other temptations in this wilderness experience, was confronted with the evil one. So let me ask that question. How will we be tempted by the devil? How will we be um, tempted to sin against God by following the will of the evil one? I, I put this down here. Forgive the mechanical. This is all Dave right here. But I'm noticing when I looked at James that there was one stimulus and then there were two possible responses. Did you hear that scripture of James go by earlier? Let me pull it back up just for a second. Um, when when we, were, we were studying this issue of, of... Oh, we're still coming to it, so I'm going to hold off for just a second. I'm sorry, we're gonna, I didn't read it for you again. Um, let me just say, when Satan uses... or Excuse me, when James uses this word, test and trial and temptation, three different words in English, right? They're one word. 
They're one word in the original languages. What? Well, we've seen this before, right? We've seen lots of times where, where we have one word and the Bible has a bunch of words, right? Give me an example. Love, right? Yeah. We have one word, love, and the Bible has four words for love, right? At least. Now, this is the opposite situation where the Bible has one word and we have interpreted it in three different ways. So I want to suggest to you that the way to navigate this is by understanding that you're going to all face a stimulus. You're going to all face something, and I'm going to use this English word for this Greek word here as trial. You're going to all face trials of various kind. Amen? Some of you are in them right now. You understand completely what I'm talking about. Some of you have been relatively blessed, and the goal is not to make you feel guilty. Celebrate that. But know that following Jesus does not mean that you will not face trials. It didn't mean it for him, and it doesn't mean it for us, right? So, so there's this first word, trial, where what you thought was true is challenged, right? There's some stimulus. What you thought was true is challenged. I thought, God, that if you love me, then nothing bad would ever happen to me. Where does the good book say that, right? Um, where what you thought was true it's challenged. James 1, 2. Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials, there's that, there's that word, of various kinds. I'm going to just say to you real quick, when you think about what is true, I'm just going to dip into a teaching from way back when for a second, that in Psalm 62, um, more clearly than any other place I've seen in the Old Testament, um, we're told the truths that are going to be challenged in our life. The psalmist writes this, One thing God has spoken. Two things I have heard, that power belongs to you, God. And with you, O Lord, is unfailing love. That's one thing. And then secondly, secondly, you reward everyone according to what they've done. I'm going to suggest to you that the greatest truth that's going to be challenged in your life is, is God both loving and powerful? Because honestly, beloved, it's much more easy intellectually to believe that he's one or the other, right? Oh, yeah, I believe that God is all-powerful. Um, when we lost our first three pregnancies, uh, that, uh, you know, I believe that, that, that God is all-powerful, but apparently he doesn't love me, right? Or else he would have given us those babies, right? Or flip it, you know, I believe that he loves me, but he's just not able to do anything about it, right? But the testament of believers, not just since Jesus Christ, but from the very beginning until now, is that he is both. He is both loving, he loves you more than you could imagine, and he is, how did Paul put it, he is able, right? More than able, right? He is powerful. I know I'm rocking some of your worlds right now because you have a stimulus. You have a trial in your mind and you can't reconcile that. Hold on, beloved. Hold on. Cry out to God. Speak to me, God, about my trial, right? But know this, that God cares about you and that he's able to meet your needs. And those two things are not contrary to one another. There's this stimulus, this trial. Now, there's two paths that we can go on this journey, right? They're all using the same word again. Path one is to see the trial as a test of faith. Did you hear it when James was going by so fast earlier? For you know that the testing of your faith, right? That's, that's the same word. 
The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Will you develop steadfastness all on your own? No, right? It's got to be a test that proves that steadfastness. Beware. You've learned this before. Never pray, God, give me patience, right? Because he's going to give you a situation which requires it, not which gives it. And he's going to ask you to step in faith into what is already yours. See the trial as a test of faith. And boy, there's a beautiful promise here. Blessed is the one right, who remains steadfast while under trial. That's you, beloved. For when he or she has stood the test, he or she will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There's, some, there's this amazing blessing for you now in the midst of the trial and coming for you as you're steadfast in the midst of it. Look at that same situation, not as a temptation, but as a test of your faith. And stand firm, beloved. Stand firm, right? But there's another path. And James does not pull punches. It's right there in the first couple of paragraphs of his letter to, to believers in the midst of trials. James is writing in a season of amazing persecution. Path two is to see the trial as a temptation and to give in. And, and again, he says, let no one say he's tempted. I mean, tempted by God, for God doesn't tempt with evil and he himself tempts no one. Look at this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his or her own desire, right? By his or her, her own desire. And when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings death. Purdue, um, at Purdue, there is a river. I believe it's the Wabash River. Can anybody help me with that? And it's a tradition. We've got a lot of Purdue people here in the sanctuary. It's a tradition uh, to do a couple things when you're in Purdue. One is to swim in every fountain on the campus. Is that, was that true when you guys were there? Yep. Another one is to swim the Wabash. Which do you suppose is more dangerous? Um, I remember going to camp with our students and um, going to a lake and jumping into that lake to do the little swim test that they do, right? Yeah. And, and guess what? A lake is not an ocean. It doesn't have salt to help buoy you up, right? Uh, even, even your pool has chlorine in it, right, which is salt, which helps. I, I sank like a brick in that lake. It was all I could do. So, so when I heard about this tradition, right, at Purdue of, of, of swimming the Wabash, crossing the Wabash, I pointed my bony finger at my son and said, don't you dare, right? Don't you dare. Well, what do you think, Matthew Christopher Mills, you always know you're in trouble when you use all three names. Matthew Christopher Mills did. He swam the Wabash. And he said, Dad, I got halfway across. I thought, I'm going to die out here. No buoyancy and river, right? They call it river because it's moving, right? It's moving down. It reminded me of a story I heard a long time ago about a boy who did the same thing. He, his dad said, don't swim in that canal. And he said, okay, dad. But he came home wearing a wet baby, bathing suit that evening. And the dad said, where have you been? And he said, swimming in the canal. And the dad said, didn't I tell you not to swim there? Yes, sir, said the boy. Why did you do it? He said, well, well dad, it's, it's like this. He said, I had my bathing suit with me and I couldn't resist the temptation. Do you see the problem? 
I had my bathing suit. Dad says, why did you take your bathing suit with you? He said, well, so I'd be prepared to swim if I was tempted. Right? <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> I got gotcha, you, right? Because we do the same thing all the time, right? We, we, we know that there is a temptation out there and, and we even prepare for the reality that we might give in to the temptation. And, and, and the problem is that we don't think this scripture all the way through. Right? Did you see where this path ended up? Each one is tempted when he's lured by his own de- desires, right? And, and when temptation gives birth to sin and sin results in death. That's where that ends up. There's a, there's a river out there that will take you where you don't want to go and you may not survive, right? So, so James cries out across the, the millennia to us and says, when you encounter trials, consider it joy, right? Because, as, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, uh, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, right? And, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. There's a way of escape, right? You've got to understand that there's two options available to you in the midst of the trial. One is to see it as a temptation. Temptation is not sin. It just leads and gives birth to sin. But before that ever happens, you can see it as something different. You can see it as a test of faith. Consider it joy because God is testing your faith. A long time ago, there was a bridge that was being built. And it was a railroad bridge. And they, um, and they wanted to test it, right? to see if it, would, if it would hold a train. So they put a fully loaded train, double the weight that most trains normally carried, and they went out and they parked that train on the bridge and left it there for 20, 21 uh, hours, right? And, and, and someone said, why are you doing that, right? Why are you tempting fate by putting that out there? And he says, I'm not tempting fate. I'm, I'm testing the faithfulness of the bridge, right? See it differently, Think about that trial that you already have been thinking about. Um, what is God doing there? God drove you there. And you have two options. Is it a temptation or is it, or is it a test of your faith? Let's finally define this for a second then. and say, what is temptation then? Right? And I'm going I'm to give you a brand new definition. Um, but looking at this James passage, I hope this is true. You guys push back. You help me sharpen my thinking. Um, I want to suggest to you that temptation is the intersection of desire and opportunity, right? Each one is tempted when he gives way to the desires that are already there, right? Think about for a second when you have given way to temptation, right? Uh, what was it? It always happens at this intersection of desire and opportunity. So, so we're going to go into solutions in great detail in, in the weeks to come. But let me just say right up front, you have a choice to make, right? Where you can remove the desire. God, take away this desire. Tonight, our, our middle school boys will be here and we'll play a lot of basketball. And then we'll pursue this thought even deeper. And where I'm going to take them this evening is to say you can change your desires when you feel the desire, let me choose something stupid if I could, just because I don't want to talk to you about other temptations that I face. When I'm facing the desire for M&Ms, right? 
Um, I can substitute something else. I can change my desires. God, we're going to see it next week. Let my hunger for you be greater than my hunger for M&Ms. Do you see what happens? The moment that you do this. This has happened to me several times in the last week, beloved, where my mind will start to wander, even in times of prayer, and, 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 and I'll realize, I don't want to go down that path, and I'll just substitute a different thought, a different desire in there, right? Some of you, um, God, desire God, not the temptation, right? Find God in the trial. But for some of us, I'm thinking of, thinking of Joseph and that situation with Potiphar's wife, some of us, you've got to just get away from the opportunity, right? You've got to put on your Adidas and run. You've got to remove yourself from even the opportunity. I shared with you before when my youth director was trying to help us with sexual temptation when I was a, a teenager. He said, make your decisions ahead of time, right? Make your decisions ahead of time. Don't make your decisions. And I don't know if he was picking on me because I had a 55 Chevy. But he said, don't make your decisions in the back of a, of a Chevy, right? That's not the place to decide. You've got to remove yourself from those opportunities. Maybe God's Holy Spirit is prompting you right now. There's a situation that you're in. And and you have a choice right here. You can leave. He's given you the power. And if you don't feel like you have the power, I mean, there's some big ticket situations out there. Then tell somebody and let them walk with you out of the situation. Take away one of those two things. Either desire desire or opportunity. And don't forget the principle of replacement to substitute something else in there as well. You'll always run back to it if there's nothing else in its place. Lastly, for now, we're going to explore temptation over the coming weeks, but but let let me just ask this question. Can we overcome temptation, right? I'll see a lot of heads nodding. Um, I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot of heads going, uh, I, I theoretically believe that's true, but not sure in my heart of hearts, right? Over the next four weeks, we'll, we'll look at many gifts that, that Jesus himself is going to give us to withstand the temptations of the evil one. But in terms of this question, can we overcome temptation? Yes. Yes. Why? We can overcome the temptation because Jesus did overcome the temptation. We have something that his disciples before his resurrection did not have. Jesus has gone before us, right? Since then, the author of the book of Hebrews says, we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us, and I'm going to substitute the word, trials, right? But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, thank you Jesus, may receive mercy. So that we, thank you God, may receive grace. So that we, thank you Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may receive help in our time of need. Oh, we'll go much deeper into this. But if you find yourself in the situation or you want to prepare yourself for the inevitable trials that will come, beloved, until this day that we go and stand face to face before Jesus, if you want to prepare yourself for it, draw near to Jesus. Let your one desire be to to draw near to him. Let me ask you, what is your desire? What is your desire today?
God has already given you everything you need. Let me put this differently. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have everything you need. You just need to remember it. Remember what Jim experienced today. That you died to self. That by the power of the Spirit, you have been raised up to new life. You have within you the power of the Holy Spirit. What's, what's your desire today? Sing with us, would you? Will you stand with us?